it's the job of every financial planner to convey how much uncertainty there really is, or else it's just the illusion of certainty by giving you a 40-page plan that has all these precise charts. It makes people feel really good, but it goes kind of stale as soon as you walk out the door. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm your host, Dan Bordelotti, and I want to say a big thanks to everyone who listened to our debut podcast and sent us your feedback. It's great to have you back for episode number two. Now, the focus of the podcast this time around is the difference between financial planning and investing, two services that are related but distinct from each other in important ways. And to help explore that idea, I've invited Sandy Martin, a fee-only planner who runs her own practice in Ontario. Now, Sandy's name will likely be familiar to listeners who are active in the Canadian financial blogosphere. She writes her own blog, which you can find at springpersonalfinance.com. And you may have also encountered her on sites such as Boomer and Echo, uh, as well as on the Because Money podcast, which is now in its third season. Now, earlier this year, Sandy and I had the pleasure of working together with a few clients. Uh, She did the financial planning for them, including recommending an appropriate asset mix. And then I designed the ETF portfolio for them and helped the clients implement it. So we have very similar philosophies when it comes to both investing and planning, and this was really a great fit. Now, in our interview, we shared some experiences and insights that we've had working with investors over the years, and I hope you'll find them helpful in your own financial life. So let's get to it. My guest on the podcast today is Sandy Martin, a financial planner whose firm is called Spring Personal Finance, and Sandy is based out of Gravenhurst in beautiful Muskoka, Ontario. Um, Sandy, I'd like to start by just asking you to explain a little bit about uh, how you became a planner and how you moved from uh, the banking world into what you're doing today. Right. Um, Well, I describe myself as an (laughs) ex-banker, which basically just means that I was in core banking, uh, which is bank speak for not high net worth people um, for many years. And right at the beginning of my career, I realized it wasn't really the business model for me. Um, But it took a long time to sort of get out of the move clients through your office really quick and sell them as many credit cards as they can walk out the door with um, into what I have now, which is a practice where I can spend a lot of time with people, maybe too much. (laughs) I think maybe some of my clients would say that it takes too long because I want to look at every angle. But um, yeah, I get to I get to talk about the things that I think are more important than which credit card they use. So tell me a little bit about the scope of the services that you offer and your pricing model because you're not selling people mutual funds and insurance products. So what sorts of advice are you are you giving and how do you charge for it? Right. So I charge um, a flat fee most of the time. Some clients would they're just working on a small slice of their financial life at a time. So you know, that might be hourly or we might go on kind of a monthly retainer model or something like that. But clients pay me and nobody else does, which is the easiest way to describe it. So I'm not, you know, mutual fund companies aren't paying me money to invest in a particular product. Right. Um, and the scope of the service depends a lot. Of course, that's the standard financial planning answer. Well, it depends. Hmm. Um, but it depends on where a client is in life and what resources they have and where they want to be and what they need those resources to do for them. So, I, of course, don't take their assets and invest them for them. Yeah, a common one is retirees. So I work a lot with people who are getting ready to retire. So the scope is what do you need to retire and how can we make that happen? And without, yeah, as I said, without taking their money and investing it for them. <laughs> okay. 
Well, that sort of leads into the next line of questioning because one of the things I wanted to speak with you about today was the difference between financial planning and investment management. And those are two terms that I think are often conflated um, among the public and in the media, even among, frankly, among financial media who should know better. And one of the things that you will often hear people encouraged to do is, you know, rather than hiring an investment advisor, look for a fee-only planner or a flat fee planner and, you know, pay them like you described by the hour or by the project. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of that type of advice? Yeah, well, it's part of the just series of advice that you find online a lot. Like, well, just go to a fee-only planner without, I mean, it's given in really, I mean, people mean well. Um, and and I can see the appeal of just having a portfolio that you're ready to manage yourself. And you just have this one question that you want to ask somebody, if I could just pay somebody by the hour to look at it. That seems really appealing. But uh, frankly, I mean, the regulatory landscape doesn't really allow for that. Um, so, I, of course, as a financial planner, I'm very convinced that you need a broader scope. When you're just talking about investments, that's one thing, but you need to talk about the why of the investments, so the everything else. Um, so I would always try and convince people that you don't really need to talk to an investment advisor until you've talked to me first. Mm -hmm. But you're right. I mean, I see them conflated all the time. Well, I think that one of the things we should be explicit about so so listeners are clear is that um, you you hinted at the regulatory regime. And so it should be clearly understood that the term financial planner outside of Quebec is not regulated in Canada. And so anybody can call themselves a financial planner. Now, I should be careful to point out that many financial planners do have specific designations such as the certified financial planner designation, but that's, you know, CFP with capital letters, lowercase financial planner is not a regulated term. And so anybody doing that kind of work can charge a flat fee uh, and offer those services to people. However, investment advisors must be licensed by their province's um, regulatory agency. And so a financial planner cannot give specific investment advice to their clients, right? So you, I mean, I'm sure you've encountered this. People will say to you, thanks, Sandy, you've designed, you know, this great plan for me. Now I need to go out and invest. And so which ETFs should I buy? Which stocks should I buy? And you have to answer how? Uh, well, I answer ahead of time. So I really try and nip that off. It's, it mm. used to be before my contact form, it would say, you understand that I can't give specific investment advice before they could even set an appointment with me. Okay. But that has to get I me. Mean, it's part of the conversation the whole way through. And it, it would be deeply dissatisfying if all I did was hand them the plan and say, okay, go find an investment advisor somewhere. So embedded in those conversations are what's the kind of investment management that you want to pay for? What do you need to get out of it? And what's available to you for the amount of assets that you have? Um, so we do, you know, we're, we're sending people away going to something else. Um, but yeah, that's not me. <laughs> so what are some of the options for your clients once you have carefully built a financial plan for them, uh, help them into implement a saving strategy, help them reduce their spending, you know, maybe recommended uh, life insurance or some other sort of risk management that they need. And now they do need to go out and build a portfolio. Now they've got a few options, right? They can do a do-it-yourself uh, model. They can look at a robo-advisor. They can hire a full-service advisor. Do you help them navigate that decision? Yeah, very frequently. I mean, to be honest, it's a pretty short list of people that I'll send clients to. And some of that depends on what the clients have to invest. I mean, I'll give a different answer to somebody who has $500,000 and about to retire 
than somebody who's just starting out and has $25,000, right? So there's um, that spectrum. And it also has to take into account not only the amount of money they're investing, um, but what their capabilities are, what they need. You know, if, it, if all they really need is just DIY plus, then there are a couple of good robo-advisors that can do that at a really fair rate. Um, but some people need more than that. And so we try and connect them with the right portfolio for the person that they are. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that has struck me as the landscape has evolved over the last couple of years is there may be an opportunity for people to work with flat fee or hourly based financial planners like yourself, coupled with the robo-advisor model for the investment side. So just to be clear for listeners who may not be familiar with it, a robo-advisor would be an online service where you could um, have them build and manage an ETF portfolio for you at very low cost, but they typically do not give anything other than the barest of financial advice. So do you think such a model might work in the future, Sandy, where you might be able to, say, visit a planner once a year? to uh, look after the saving strategies, debt repayment, cash flow, all those sorts of issues, and then just have the robo-advisor manage the portfolio according to general advice that the planner provided. Yeah. I think sometimes that seems to be contrary to what people want. They want like a unique personalized portfolio. The kinds of clients that I work with, the non-high net worth clients, they don't really need that. And it's not because they're too poor to, it's not, it's nothing to do with them not needing something better. There isn't anything. I mean, everybody wants the same thing from their investment portfolio, really. They want it to be efficient in taxes if it's, you know, if there's non-registered stuff involved. They want it to um, earn enough and not take too much risk, given the constraints of that particular client. So if a portfolio is constructed, you know, if the asset allocation is wise, if the portfolio management is according to a good process, I could funnel a whole bunch of different types of clients into one particular type of portfolio service, and it would be appropriate for them. One of the um, things that, that, that I have certainly encountered in working with clients over the last couple of years is a tendency for a lot of people to focus on investments first mm -hmm. and planning second. And I think it should be clear that the process needs to work the other way around. Um, the investment portfolio needs to be built with the plan in mind, not the other way around. So can you talk a little bit about the priorities that um, investors should have when they come into this process? Yeah. I mean, I, I like to talk about it as though the financial planning is the why and the investment is the how. And, and again, it goes back to that point that everybody just wants their investments to grow reasonably, right? Um, but why they want them to grow can be different for a, a lot of different people. The kind of life that you want those investments to pay for, I think it's important to know all the tools that you have at your disposal in your own financial toolkit, the way that you spend your money, the some of the behavioral quirks that you have around spending, your ability to save, the risks that you have. Maybe your spouse is a lot older than you. There's, of course, a lot of specific things that we could talk about there. But if you don't have all of those uh, kind of an understanding of your own financial situation and all you're doing is investing first, your investments might be okay, but you have left yourself kind of rudderless in a in kind of a life of financial decisions that you need to make that your investments aren't going to be able to answer for you. What are some of the other more common obstacles that people face when trying to build a financial plan with you? And I, I'm thinking just more like personal biases that they might have, reluctance to invest in a certain way or uh, discomfort with certain types of investments, maybe too much comfort level with debt, 
um, conflict with spouses and things like that? What are the kind of things that come up in your conversations that really can throw a wrench in, in the works? Yeah, I mean, all of those. Um, but one of the biggest blind spots or kind of areas of resistance that clients often have is where they spend and how they spend. And I don't mean that everybody needs to have like a 17 category budget and it's all kind of down to the last penny. But it's it's as if it's okay to just plug in a number and make that the assumption and then build a financial plan around that. And especially when we're talking about retirement, all the work that we do to talk about making your portfolio last for your entire lifetime comes down to how do you spend your money every week and month and year? And if there is no willingness to examine that in any great detail, um, it's just a bunch of guesses in an intake form. And I don't, I personally don't find that very satisfactory to to plan with. Now, one of the challenges that we face as, as financial planners is that so much of the work that we do relies on assumptions mm. and we can't get around that. But there is a difference between a reasonable assumption and a wild guess. And there is also, I think, an importance that clients understand that once you plug in assumptions into a financial plan, what you're going to create is a range of possible outcomes. But clients want precision, right? They want to know, what's my portfolio going to be worth in 20 years, right? What is the probability that I will be able to meet my financial goals, um, you know, if I retire at age 60 and pass away at age 90? And precision is not something that we can usually attain as a financial planner. So can you discuss a little bit about how you deal with that uncertainty? Yeah, sometimes I feel like my entire job is explaining that kind of straight line projections are well and good in a certain sense, but the rest of your life is totally uncertain. We could kind of almost, it's kind of like a due date in childbirth. Like that's kind of the statistically most likely day that your baby is not going to be born. <laughs> um, so it's important, I think, at the beginning and at the middle and at the end of any client engagement to keep saying, this is what we think according to our reasonable assumptions is going to happen. Let's be prepared. Let's do some stress tests, number one, but let's be prepared that if that doesn't happen, which it might not, here's where we can make adjustments. So, and every year you're going to, it doesn't mean that you always have to come back to your financial planner. I mean, you should over time develop good decision-making skills, if this, then this. But I think that's the job of every financial planner to convey how much uncertainty there really is, or else it's just the illusion of certainty by giving you a 40-page plan that has all these precise charts. It makes people feel really good, but it goes kind of stale as soon as you walk out the door. Exactly. One of, one of the, uh, in terms of precision, one of the numbers that people always seem to ask when, when having a financial plan done is, you know, how much money do I need to retire? How big does my portfolio need to be in order for me to flip the switch and move into retirement? Um, that number is obviously going to be very different depending on clients' circumstances. So can you talk a little about how you answer that question? I mean, I'd love to have a formula <laughs> that would be really useful, but most of the time, the f kind of the, the best way that I can answer that question is by asking some more questions. So what is enough is very different from one client to the next. So we have to talk about what's your kind of bare, comfortable standard of living. And enough comes, like, I mean, there's a whole spectrum of, of risks in retirement, and we need to talk about what are the non-negotiables. So you're not going to move out of your house. It's really important to you to have money left in a reserve so that you can, you know, pay for nursing care around the clock later on in life because that's what happened to your mother. People's own sense of what enough is, is what has to drive the conversation around, well, here's the amount of money you need to have saved because you have all these things that need to happen and all these risks you want to avoid. Just to bring things back full circle to the investing discussion, one of the services that uh, you offer is a portfolio audit where 
Presumably, you're looking at people's investment portfolios and identifying some red flags, maybe too much risk, too much cost, etc. Can you talk a little bit about some of the most common investing mistakes you see during that process? Yeah, the most common is people first viewing their separate investment accounts as if they're kind of segregated from everything else. So here's my RRSP. What about that? Here's my TFSA. What about that? And really, it's your entire portfolio for any given goal. And for most people, it's their retirement portfolio. And that could span non-registered RSP and TFSA as well, right? Um, but very often, what you'll see is actually, you called it the advisor six-pack. So you have the you know somebody with a balanced mutual fund, and then another kind of portfolio service fund, a bunch of all-in-one funds, and then a Canadian dividend fund or something like that. Something that clearly has not been put together with a sense of, you know, real disciplined asset allocation. Often, if you look underneath, you're going to see 12 Royal Banks, 12 Enbridges, 12 Brookfield Asset Managers. Like, I mean, not that I'm talking to clients about the specific securities that they're owning, but you can tell right away that it was never put together with a disciplined sense of what this client actually needs to achieve in an efficient way. So that's, I see that all the time. I think that uh, one of the things that uh, we we agree on in, in terms of our approach is the value of simplifying portfolios. Um, the model portfolios I recommend on my site, you know, typically have three or four funds. That's all you need. Um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, even if you're not making specific investment recommendations to people, uh, a lot of the time you must be looking at some of these portfolios and saying, you know, you could probably get the same level of diversification much lower cost and much easier portfolio to manage with fewer but more broadly diversified investments. And one of the things that I always get as feedback when, when we work with a client whose portfolio was that kind of meatloaf before is that, you know, it's so much more satisfying now to look at my investments and I feel like I understand them and I have a plan going forward. Can you reflect a little bit on any other experiences that have you had similar sorts of reactions when you finally simplify people's financial lives? Yeah, there's always that last little slice that people want to stick into a simple portfolio. If we're talking in general terms about a like a Canadian couch potato model portfolio as kind of a theory or philosophy of investing, yeah, but can I have a slice of dividends? Because I really like seeing those dividends come into my portfolio. We've all, I think everybody has had those conversations with clients. But in the end, a simple portfolio for clients have simple rules to manage them. And simple rules mean that you can actually execute. As opposed to looking at your portfolio that has seven funds. I mean, even that is actually relatively simple given the universe of portfolios that we know exist. But if you have to kind of pull out the spreadsheet and kind of tax your brain every time and it personally, behaviorally, it's going to be something you're going to avoid. And then you're going to start to fear it and you're going to start to feel guilt about it and you're not going to do it anymore. Um, and I think that's a terrible recipe for portfolio management. I'd rather just have three funds and not worry about getting too smart or looking for the secret sauce. Perfect. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Sandy, where can people find you if they're looking for your services? They can find me at springpersonalfinance.com or they can find me on Twitter, but probably springpersonalfinance.com is better. <laughs> okay. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right, so let's review some of the takeaways from my discussion with Sandy. The first one is to recognize that financial planning and investment advice are quite distinct. And this isn't just a semantic thing or some kind of industry jargon. I mean, they're regulated in very different ways. And so I often see or read in the financial media this advice that really you should hire your investment advisor and pay them a flat fee or an hourly rate instead of a 
percentage of your assets. I think it's important to understand that you're just not going to find that model in Canada. I get a lot of emails from people asking for recommendations uh, for people like this. And, and the fact is the model just doesn't exist. So you can certainly hire a financial planner for a flat fee or an hourly rate. But remember that planners are not licensed to give investment advice for the most part. And they certainly can't manage your portfolio on an ongoing basis. Now that said, I do think that in the next few years, we're going to see more and more people working with flat fee planners and then using a robo-advisor to manage their portfolios. I mean, ideally, planning and investment management should be integrated. Uh, and many full-service firms, including ours, do both of those things. But, you know, we have minimum account sizes of half a million dollars or more. So that excludes an awful lot of Canadians. And so for investors with smaller portfolios, I do think that personalized planning coupled with some fairly generic portfolio management, like the offerings of a robo-advisor, might well be a good model. I mean, it's certainly better than paying 2.75% for crappy mutual funds and no planning, which is what most Canadian investors, or at least many Canadian investors, uh, are getting now, unfortunately. The second point here is that the plan really needs to come before the portfolio. And this is something that Sandy and I see all the time. I mean, investors want to start the discussion with what ETFs should I buy when they really should be looking at their portfolio as a tool to accomplish a specific job, whether that's saving for retirement or their kid's education or a legacy for their heirs, whatever. You need to define the job before you know what tool that you need to accomplish it. I think we should also be clear here that a financial plan is not meant to be a precision document that tells you exactly when you can retire or exactly how much your portfolio will be worth when you die. It's always going to be based on a lot of assumptions and many of those are going to turn out to be wrong. So all it can do really is help you anticipate a range of possible outcomes. Uh, a metaphor that I like to use here is that a financial plan is more like a compass than a map. It can keep you moving in the right direction but it can't tell you every twist and turn in the road ahead. And then finally, a financial plan is a process, not a product. You know, it's not a binder of tables and charts that you print off once and then never look at again. Planning is supposed to provide a framework for making good investment decisions. And it needs to be an ongoing process, not a one-off event. So there's a great quote from uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower that I like here. He said, in preparing for battle, I have always found that plans are useless, but planning is indispensable. I think that's good advice, whether you're preparing for battle or for retirement. And now it's time for another round of Bad Investment Advice. The segment where we scour the financial media for dumb ideas that you should ignore. Today I want to talk about this idea that you should adjust your investment strategy in anticipation of major events, and I'll use the 2016 US election as a case study of how this can go wrong very quickly. So the chatter about the election started well before Americans went to the polls. There was a market watch column on November 2nd where the writer wrote, and I quote here, I'm holding a lot of my portfolio in cash and the like right now, and not just US dollars. I'm heavily into Swiss francs, British pounds, euros, Swedish krona, and gold bullion. He went on to say that he wasn't predicting a Trump victory or even that markets would plummet if Trump won, but simply recognizing that these two possibilities are, and I quote again, bigger risks than most people realize, and I know those risks are not currently reflected in the stock or bond markets. 
So the columnist then tried to justify that comment by pointing to the decision of the UK to leave the European Union earlier this year. So here's another quote. He says, the British stock market fell by almost 10% overnight following the Brexit shock in June. The pound crashed further. Stocks quickly rebounded, but the British currency has kept falling. So presumably his argument here is that in the face of a looming event with wide-ranging economic implications, the smartest thing to do is go to cash and then wait for the results. And if the markets plummet, you can buy back in cheaply. And I think this pretty much reflected the consensus view before the election, right? If Trump wins, gold will probably rise, the US dollar will probably fall, stocks will probably fall too, interest rates will decline, and that would drive up the price of bonds. Well, let's look at how you might have fared had you followed that advice. So for now, let's forget about the specific recommendations people were making, and let's just consider the general idea of preparing your portfolio for a potential Trump victory. Right? Let's remember that right up until election day, the vast majority of polls were predicting a Clinton victory. So whatever your personal opinion might have been, I think it's fair to say that we can agree the market was not expecting a Trump win. So making a bunch of tactical moves to prepare for that possibility meant that right off the top, you think you're smarter than the market. And that's always a dangerous assumption. But let's say you had made the bet that Trump would win. Well, it turns out you were right. But what happened? Well, it certainly wasn't anything that the gurus had predicted, at least not in the few weeks that followed the election. Let's consider gold fell in price. The US dollar rose against most major currencies, including the Canadian dollar. Interest rates saw one of their biggest jumps in the last few years and bond prices fell. So this was the exact opposite of what most people predicted would happen after a Trump win. So in other words, even if you were right, you were still wrong. Now, I think one of the assumptions that people often make about index investors is that we think markets are perfectly efficient, but that's not true. It's just that they're the best tool that we have for pricing in risk. They're certainly better than random columnists at MarketWatch. So anytime you hear a commentator say something like, I think there's a risk here and markets are not recognizing it, you need to be extremely skeptical, right? Why does this guy think that he's got some insight into the global economy that has somehow escaped the millions of other market participants, right? I'm sorry, he doesn't. And what's more, even if he is a guru who's smarter than the market, where did that get him? I mean, he prepared his portfolio for a Trump victory by going to cash and diversifying into foreign currencies and gold. And then when it turned out that Trump won the election, all of those assets went down in response. So the point here is trying to make tactical moves in your portfolio before major events is futile at best and potentially destructive. So if you've got a financial plan and you've built a diversified portfolio with an appropriate amount of risk, you can safely ignore the gurus and just stick to your strategy. And if some asset classes rise or fall after the event, and they will, we just don't know which ones, just rebalance them back to your targets. So gurus who think that they can predict the future and see risks that the markets don't recognize are just giving you bad investment advice. Now I'm sure you hear a lot of rotten investment ideas in the media or from your coworkers or maybe your brother-in-law. And if so, I want to help you tune them out. So send me your dumb advice at mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and I will make some sarcastic comments about it on a future podcast. 
That brings us to our final segment, Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from podcast listeners and readers of my blog. Joining me again and holding a gigantic box of letters is my colleague, Amanda DL. Amanda, what is in the inbox today? Thanks, Dan. So today we have another question regarding your model ETF portfolios. This one is from a reader named Jocelyn, and she asks, is there a reason why corporate bonds are not often suggested in your ETF model portfolios? I talked with some of my friends, and I was wondering why you would use government bonds when corporate bonds offer a yield bonus of 1%. There doesn't seem to be any additional risk. In the financial crisis of 2008, corporate bond ETFs lost only about 5% and recovered in a couple of months. Thanks, Amanda, and thanks for that question, Jocelyn. So by way of background, uh, investors can choose to focus only on bonds issued by governments, whether that's federal, provincial, or even municipal governments, or those issued by individual companies. So if two bonds have the same term to maturity, let's say it's two years or five years or whatever it is, but one has a higher yield, that probably indicates more risk, right? So bonds issued by the federal government have an extremely low risk of default, so their yields are relatively low. Whereas a bond issued by an individual company is generally considered to have a bit more risk and therefore it'll pay a higher yield. Now, there's also corporate bonds that offer much higher yields because they're issued by distressed companies. These are often called junk bonds, but that's not what we're talking about here. I think Jocelyn is only concerned with what we would call investment grade corporate bonds, which are issued by companies with strong balance sheets, right? So the big banks, Bell, Telus, Manulife, so on. Jocelyn wants to know whether investors should choose an ETF that holds only these high-quality corporates and then forget about government bonds altogether. I mean, fair enough, the chance of a major Canadian bank or blue-chip company defaulting on its debt is very low, and that minimal risk may well be worth it if the yield difference is 1% or so. But I think the place to begin answering this question is to point out that the bond index funds and ETFs in my model portfolios are actually not made up entirely of government bonds. A traditional bond index fund usually has between 20% and 40% of their holdings in high quality corporate bonds. So you've got a balance already in there if you hold one of these funds. The second point to understand is that the difference in yield between government and corporate bonds of the same maturity, which is called the credit spread, actually changes depending on conditions. So in general, if the economy is strong, that spread's fairly narrow because corporate bonds are perceived to be not all that risky. But during a recession or a financial crisis, the risk of default is perceived to be a lot higher, and so credit spreads will widen as investors demand more compensation for that increased risk. So if I look at the government bond versus high-quality corporate bond ETFs right now, you know, they're about 0.7 or 0.8%, so not quite the 1% that Jocelyn mentioned. But then if you look at the crisis of 2008-2009, you know, they reached about 4% in Canada, and in the U.S., they were well over 6% at their peak, so they can vary a lot. And that really leads us to the question of whether corporate bonds are really all that much more risky than government bonds. So corporate bond ETFs are certainly more volatile than those that hold only government bonds. Um, typically, if there's a, a significant downturn in the equity markets, people are going to pour money into government bonds for their perceived safety, and this is going to drive up their price, and that offers a pretty important diversification benefit. Corporate bonds, on the other hand, are not likely to rise as much during this period, and they may even fall along with stocks like they did in 2008-2009. 
There can also be problems with liquidity. And that means that during troubled times, you know, you may not be able to sell your corporate bonds or at least not at a price that you consider to be fair. Whereas government bonds, especially those with short maturities, are the most liquid investments of all. Now, it is true that even after the 0809 crisis, the corporate bond market bounced back very quickly, but we can only say that in hindsight. I mean, it's easy to brush off the crisis because we know things recovered very quickly, but you know, I remember those days pretty well, and believe me, holding corporate bonds at the time did not offer any comfort. All of which is to say there's nothing at all wrong with including high-quality corporate bonds in a diversified portfolio. It's just important to be aware that as in all the investment decisions, there is a risk-reward trade-off you need to be aware of. So I think it's best to just take a balanced approach and use a broad-based index fund or ETF that holds a mix of government bonds and high-quality corporates. Thanks, Dan. And thank you, Jocelyn, for your question. Remember, if you've got an investing question you would like answered on a future installment of Ask the Spud, send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com. Dan responds to all of his emails personally, and if your question has broad appeal, he may answer it on an upcoming podcast. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks a lot for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or through your favorite podcast software. In our next episode, I'll be chatting with Lars Kroyer, a former hedge fund manager who's based in the UK and who's now an advocate of index investing. He's got a very interesting perspective on this subject, and I know you're going to enjoy it. Until then, I'm Dan Bordelotti. We'll see you next time.